I would like to introduce to you Ran. And um, Ran Chapman is a colleague of mine. He is also a good friend. And um, I could not think of anyone more appropriate to invite to speak to us as interprofessional uh, relationship builder is uh, Ran. He's a social worker, spiritual advisor. He is also an entrepreneur, teacher, mentor, world traveler. Most of all, he speaks from heart and he's a very skillful speaker. The reason I invited him to holistic nursing is that I am having in my heart burdensome um, uh, dilemma that I noticed that in um, South Carolina especially, we are not speaking about addiction as a bio-psycho-emotional, spiritual, and physical illness. Our um, particular scope of practice, holistic nursing, addresses every illness on that platform. Nevertheless, since we have epidemics of addiction that is plaguing our nation, our chapter is taking upon ourselves to speak about that dilemma and address the illness, affliction, the melody from bio-psycho-emotional, spiritual, and environmental aspect. Thank you for letting us share with you that story. Fran? Thank you, Mario. <laughs> Pia Melody, who was the co-founder of the Meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona, one of the preeminent treatment facilities for all kinds of addictions, says that all addiction, all addiction, begins with childhood neglect, abandonment, betrayal, or abuse. What some of us might call trauma, what increasing in the larger public health world is being referred to as stress, which is a much more comfortable world, I think, word, I think. I'm tickled to be here. That sets the scene for how we're going to get here. And just a little bit about me, just a smidge. I have a company called Leading Public Health. I work in the public health space. And I also have two emerging programs that I'm working with, Seeing True and Progressive Recovery. Feel free to read those and take those cards with you. They tell you a little bit about this body of work, which I'm not going to spend time on because my job is not here to be here to tell you all what I do, but to tell you what I've learned through this process. So here's why Pia says that. If you have much background in the development of the child, what you would know, or what we would hopefully know, is that every child is the product of all the generations before it. They have inherited, every child has inherited a genetic download that knows, in Pia's words, what it is to be loved. Let's call that more generally, what it is to be nurtured. All of those who couldn't find nurturance, who couldn't find love, who couldn't find that space, they died. They were lost to the gene pool. So every single one of you and everybody we know, when you're dropped on the planet Earth, you have built into your fabric looking for nurturance. Now the reason Pia says this, as I understand it, and in my practice working with a lot of people in recovery addiction, recovery from addictions, is because as soon as the baby drops on the planet Earth, and if, a lot of you probably know failure to bond, a very common challenge that we find. That in itself, Pia would probably argue, creates a psychic dissonance. 
the baby is dropped on the planet Earth, it knows, it knows in its genes, it knows that it needs nurturance, and it goes looking for it. Well, failure to bond is a distance. That would perhaps be called a mild form of neglect. All of these sayings, abandonment, betrayal, abuse, and neglect, produce dissonance in the body. Now, there's a really interesting con- uh, contrast here. In, in the world of recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, they use a phrase over and over again. They talk about the addict or the alcoholic being restless, irritable, and discontented. That's the exact recovery language. What they're signaling is that same dissonance that the baby experiences because the baby's not being loved, not being nurtured. And the consequence is that something sets up in the body, and today we know a lot about trauma being in the body, not in the mind, so it is a kind of traumatizing, whether it's mild or severe. And what that does, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy, if a baby's not getting sufficient nurturance, the baby's developmental energy is misdirected to just simply surviving. The data on this is really strong about when babies are significantly deprived of appropriate nurturance. We have a lot of data. You all will be very familiar with that. So the, so, so the deal is we drop onto planet Earth looking for nurturance. If we don't get it, our developmental energy is misdirected into trying to survive. The result is that development of higher functioning is stunted, retarded, misdirected. If you've been following the information that's coming out about even the mild effects of growing up in poverty, hunger, mild violence, if there is such a thing, what they're finding in the data is that children who grow up in deprivation, even mild things, not just mild things like hunger, end up with a significantly decreased possibility of good life outcomes. They're less likely to be well-educated. They're less likely to have a successful career of any kind. They're less likely to be successful in their community and their family systems. It's the same pattern. There's this early on trauma or stress they're preferring to call it. Again, because it's less threatening than saying our babies are being traumatized. There's some really extreme examples. There's a whole generation of young people in Afghanistan who are deeply traumatized. We can predict future bad outcomes. We don't know what they'll be. We can predict future bad outcomes. Uh, Children living in dire poverty in our own country, some even in this community, they too, we can predict with some likelihood that there will be negative outcomes for them. Now, this is something we were actually chatting a little bit before, those of us got together for lunch. Part of the mischief that creeps into this space is we like to label that personal choice in our culture. We like to blame the individual. We like to say, for example, Lots of case studies of this. Two babies born into families. One goes well, one doesn't go so well. They have the same kind of nurturance or lack thereof. And we say, well, one child chose well, the other child chose badly. That's what we do in the culture. We, we, we essentially judge and condemn them. When in fact, what we now know is a product um, called resilience in children. We don't know what resilience is. We know that some children have resilience and some children don't. Take a child with resilience, drop them into a difficult circumstance. They may yet do well. Take a child without resilience. Literally, they can be siblings. They will not do so well. That's the dynamics of what happens. Now, there's always this question about, well, if that's true, then why isn't every child who's in a bad situation an addict? 
Well, there's a feature in the genetics of some. Some would describe it as a switch on the inside. Some would argue now that it's because of inadequate beta-endorphin production. Some would argue it's inadequate serotonin production. All kinds of possibilities. In fact, there's a woman out in New Mexico who's actually looking at nutritional solutions to help get better uptake of blood chemistry into the brain, which actually decreases craving for substances. It's a very, very interesting and evolving field. So you've got this situation where something in the biochemistry, the literal makeup of some people, there's a switch inside. They say quite often in the recovering world, it's actually a devastating, rather humorous comment, that I may not have had a drink until I got to be 14, but I needed a drink long before then. Those are the kinds of statements that signal this dissonance, this restless, irritable, and discontented. And when they finally get to a place, in fact, I know one story of a woman who, at the age of seven, was put on her grandfather's knee, and he gave her a sip of his Schlitz malt liquor. She was stealing liquor from a liquor cabinet almost immediately. That something happened in her. There's this restless, irritable, discontented thing, this dissonance. The alcohol goes in, it does something, it produces what the people in the recovering world would call a sense of ease and comfort. The dissonance is dissipated, the trigger kicks in, and craving sets up, and the next thing you know, an eight-year-old is stealing liquor and is smart enough to pour water in to make up for the liquor she's stealing at the age of eight. And again, we would like to label that and say, bad kid. The truth of the matter is, in that particular instance, she grew up in a fairly devastated situation. The truth is that she was born into a broken family system, and the most significant memory she has, which came out of some regression work that we did with her, the most significant memory started at the age of two, developmental benchmark, right? Age of two is really important. She remembers sitting under the peach tree in the backyard eating peaches, and she was happy as she could be. One of her next significant sentinel memories is having to come in because, quote, as her Aunt Jessie told her, your mama's not doing very well. You're going to need to take care of her. Well, Daddy, who she called Papa, vanished from her life shortly thereafter. And she had to take care of her younger sibling. When she was able to finally, with Grandpa, get that Schlitzwald liquor, she was off to the races. And she was off to the races until about the age of 31 when her life finally train wrecked. Now, I use that one as a particular example because it's extraordinarily difficult to blame an eight-year-old. If she had started when she was 28, it would be a much different conversation because it would be much easier for us to say, well, she made a bad choice. But it's the same switch on the inside, and if P is right, and the data is still out, but if P is right... This stuff gets set into motion very early on simply by inadequate nurturance, or at least not enough nurturance, so that a baby with their particular kind of resilience is able to go forward with only a modicum of human dysfunction. You all know what I'm talking about? Like, all of us have problems. All of us have challenges. Everybody has trouble with relationships. Like, this is like human stuff. But when you put the rocket fuel of this relief craving phenomenon, it takes people to devastating places. And so that's really important because it turns out that this addiction problem is not a moral issue. 
In fact, the underpinnings of the history of recovery, for those who know this, are that one of the big impediments and the reason the programs of recovery are anonymous is because all of the moral value judgments that were placed upon addicts at that time, there was no tolerance permitted. They didn't understand some of the things we understand now. So if we go all the way back and look at that, there's this shame producing, and we now know that that too is traumatizing. So imagine here, you have a seven-year-old who gets a sip from daddy's beer. It triggers the switch. She's in a high-stress situation. By the age of eight, she's drinking regularly, stealing liquor. Hard to imagine for an eight-year-old, isn't it? And then she begins this whole process, because in the meantime, she has to keep taking care of her mother, because her mother's not mentally well. So she's got all of this, and she's got Aunt Jessie telling her that she needs to take care of her mother. That is awful stress on an eight-year-old. She eventually ended up in recovery because her life train wrecked, as I said, and it turned out very, very badly for her. Our culture doesn't want to acknowledge that the underpinnings date back to childhood. If what P is saying is true, because the average parent wants to say, that's not my problem. I didn't do that to my kid. But we also know that a lot of the family dynamics that produce low nurturance are common to dysfunctional families. And so even when you find these instances where the alcohol is removed from a generation, it skips a generation, as they say, and kids are wondering, how come, how come I'm an alcohol? What happened? Well, they didn't talk about it because it was too shameful. So it skips a generation, but the family dynamics are still in place. They still create the lack of nurturance. It still triggers the need for something to relieve the stress, and off they go to the races. And it happens all the time, and we don't talk about it. Now, the reason it's becoming such a really great topic now is because right now the white middle class is being hammered with prescription drug overdose and heroin. I mean, just hammered. And there are those who have lots of strong feelings about this because it should have been seen earlier when it was in more marginalized communities. But the truth of the matter is that's the way our world works. One of my clients is the group at the Centers for Disease Control that's working in that arena. And it truly is a public health emergency. And so one asks the question, well, what does that mean about our culture? Well, if you're biblically grounded, there's that great biblical scripture about the, the sins of the father being visited upon the son. That means if you're a 19-year-old parent who's got this untreated issue, unaccepted issue, marginalized, put in the darkness, the shadows, shamed, before you even know you have a problem, you have passed a lot of the dynamic on to the next generation. And it cycles over and over and over and over again, and which is, in, in my assessment, as I look at what's happening, especially with the heroin increase, uh, that's being driven by this generational load. So it sounds really dire, doesn't it? it? Sounds really dire. Well, it's a public health emergency, so I guess we should consider it fairly dire. But I want to talk to you about understanding how we go to another place, because officially the title for today is Bearing Witness, Creating a Way for the Return of the Prodigal Act, which is kind of crazy, but I really liked it when I wrote it, so Mario agreed to let me go along with it. <laughs> So let me talk about bearing witness for a moment. Now let me put this in context. A lot of nurses here. So I have to tell you the story of my father's death. My father died from end-stage alcoholism. It was a long, protracted, awful affair. The good man, if you met him, you would say, he's a good man. I mean, he tried hard to pay taxes. He had that craving thing that happened, and it just didn't go well for him. 
Um, but if you met him, you'd say, in fact, at his funeral, many, many people talked about the wonderful things my father did. So we can't even label him a bad man. But what we can say is that he had this alcoholism thing. I learned later that there's some pretty challenging pieces of his history that probably created the lack of nurturance, including, interestingly enough, the fact that his parents lost their farm in the Great Depression in Oklahoma. They lost their livelihood, their sense of well-being. And it was a family system breakdown. You go, well, that all of a sudden makes some sense. But the story I want to tell you is actually about one visit to the emergency room, which happened quite often, so much so that we were kind of immune to it, to be really, some people had that experience. Someone shows up in the emergency room X number of times. At some point, it's going to be fine. They'll figure it out. They've got trauma people. They'll figure it out. It's too painful to be with all the time. So he was in the emergency room one day. They knocked him out with some opiate because he was in deep pain. He had bad, bad pancreatitis. And he, uh, there was an awful nurse there. I mean, she was awful. I mean, really, I hadn't seen the whole gamut. But you know, I don't know what that story was. All I know is that she treated my father roughly. She was unpleasant to me and my siblings. Um, I believe that she had her own unfinished business around this issue of addiction. And it was heartbreaking. And um, I kicked her out. And I went and found whoever's in charge. And they sent me another woman named Bonnie. <clears throat> Bonnie was the kindest nurse I ever met. She was so gentle with me and my family and my dad. She was so kind. You could tell she, I mean, into her being, she understood this deal. And she didn't judge my dad. She didn't see him as someone who was condemnable. She saw him as a broken, fragile man at the end of his life who needed her help. So at one point, towards the end of this, because I'm just, I mean, I was really wrung out by this difficulty with the first nurse. I mean, it was really painful to watch. And then I was so touched by what the second nurse did. I took her aside and I said, Bonnie, this is just the most magnificent thing. I'm, this is the best care my dad has ever got. Thank you. And she looked down at the floor. And I said, I said Bonnie, what's up? And she goes, well... I need to tell you the truth. It's okay, tell me the truth. My dad was an alcoholic. Okay. And she says, and one day, after yet one more awful story in the family, I came home and Ron, I just snapped. I went in the closet, I pulled out his handgun, I loaded it, I walked over to bed and I said, Dad, get in the damn car. And he said, honey, what are you doing with my gun? She said, Dad, get in the damn car. He said, honey, what are you doing with my gun? She said, dad, we are so tired of this. We're going to drive out of the desert. I'm going to leave you with this gun. Put a bullet through your head and we will all suffer far, far less. And then she looked at me and she had tears in her eyes. And so she said, I know how broken this stuff is. And I'm not here taking care of your dad because I'm virtuous. I'm here working with your dad because I know how hard this is and I know how it feels to be on the receiving end of that stuff. So you're welcome. I gave her a hug. She's actually, I have a book uh, that I'm in the process of writing. She's got a part in there. She has a profound effect on my life because I got a chance to see in this holistic world you all play in, where it's a very understanding world. It's a world that brings all this together. And the reason this becomes important, the reason we are able to bear witness to the, to the prodigal addict, to the addict, to the broken person, is because our hearts, to quote the Buddhists, have been broken open. 
They haven't been broken. They've been broken open. And the result is what many of us would call compassion, empathy, love, the stuff that really makes us available to other human beings in some very, very significant ways. And that's what made her as good as she was, is she'd been broken open by it. And she hadn't gotten bitter, she hadn't gotten mean, she'd gotten wholer as a result of it, which is a nice play on holism, isn't it? Holism, wholer. And the result was that she was able to give care to my dad. I share that story because the beginning point to the solution is that we must have our hearts broken open. Anything in the healthcare system, anything in the culture that is condemnatory of the addict is an impediment to the addict's well-being and recovery. And we all suffer as a result. It only takes one bit of drunk driving carnage to convince you of how high the price is. One broken family system. So the starting point for this bearing witness is we have to drop our own barriers. We have to deal with our own judgment, our own condemnation. Now when I do this work in communities, I love it. I end up doing this in faith communities a fair amount. And the part that's so interesting is, you know, most all of you, I can bet this about you. Your value set does not include condemning people, right? I know that. I know that. Which Greenville, South Carolina, I know that. So too in many places. Condemnation is something we humans don't believe to be part of our value set. And yet when faced with these things that perhaps we don't understand or that are causing all kinds of difficulties that we don't know how to explain, we condemn the addict. And it is that downward spiral of shame that that produces that causes us to go into the shadows, to go into the darkness of the night. Um, I was talking with a guy uh, not long ago who was really in a tough place, recovering addict. And he, he, uh, he, would, he, he had gone back to church for the first time. And he had an awful experience. Not because the people were bad, but because of what was going on inside him. And he said, Ron, I don't understand how it is all those people can be so good. And I laughed and I said, oh, no, nah, rest assured, there's like stuff going on behind the scenes they're not talking about. Because, uh, I mean, that's humanity, right? I mean, it, there it is. And, and we shun it, we set it aside, we judge it, we condemn it. This becomes so very important because you can't actually, and some of you, maybe all of you know this, you can't actually be in the presence of someone, truly present, when there's condemnation present. You just can't do it. I was doing this work with a fifth grade teacher, and uh, not that fifth grade teacher. <laughs> You're second grade, as I recall. Anyway, whatever you are, Harry. I have friends in the audience, too, who were kind enough to come out. And, and she said, oh, yeah, I can tell the difference between my kids' outcomes based on whether or not they feel me judging them. Just that variable alone impedes their outcomes. So in the true spirit of the helping professions, we must clean up our own baggage and get it out of the way. And for you all, that's a daunting task, not for you personally, but because the whole medical system has lots of baggage. I mean, it's just a challenging proposition, so bless you for being willing to take it on. But we want to bro- break ourselves open uh, so that we can, we can hold non-judgment. Or if you're a social worker, there's at least a few of us in this room. I found that out about you earlier with Tessa. The social work value set is unconditional positive regard, which means nothing you do will cause me to find fault with you. Nothing, truly nothing. It's the closest thing to unconditional love that any of us have in our professional practices, and it's a value set for social work, a magnificent one, because it asks me to get over myself so that I will not judge you. That's the only way to begin to work in this space is we have to deconstruct our own barriers. 
the block in our own eye. You can't do any of this kind of important work as long as you're judging people, no matter how good your intentions may be. So that's the entry point to what I think is actually a great deal of optimism, despite all these bad statistics and possibly bad outcomes. There are some neat things going on in the world. We have learned so much about what's going on in the brain of addicts that we just didn't used to know. I mean, everything about neuroreceptors and and why it is that uh, you take them off the alcohol and the drugs, and the next thing you know, they're like eating chocolate, like it's like it's going out of style. Uh, or as a, as a joke in the recovering community says, well, it's obvious you go to any of those recovery meetings. It's really apparent that all they really need is enough caffeine, sugar, and nicotine, and they'll be fine, right? And they give me some coffee, some cigarettes, and some some some, some chocolate, and I'm gonna like cruise right on through. And in fact, I I know a guy who who swears by the chocolate ice cream recovery plan. Um, eating as much chocolate ice cream in early sobriety as necessary to crave the beast, right? To do something with the beast. Um, we find lots of crossover in the mental health community because we know there are things going on in their, their neurology that um, we know there are things going on. We don't know what to do with them, but we know what's going on. So all these crossovers. But let me tell you a little bit about where the real hope lies in this field besides us learning a lot. We're finding all kinds of somatic practices. And for you all, holistic nurses, this is like a perfect space because it's all those non-medical modalities. In fact, there's a guy named Reggie Ray, who's a renegade Buddhist. I'm not a Buddhist, but they got some cool people. Um, and, and Reggie Ray says that enlightenment, awakening, being restored to ourselves, happens in the body, not in the head. Which, interesting enough, everybody knows that talk therapy has been surprisingly ineffective for many of these problems. Talk therapy mostly is working with the brain. Now, I'm a big fan of talk therapy. I've practiced it a lot, and I've been the recipient of a lot of it. The result is that it's a useful entry point. But what we're learning actually came out of what is now known as EMDR. I'm sure a lot of heads nodding. And here's the crazy part about science. We still don't know why EMDR works. There's something about alternate side stimulation of the brain which brings things up. It's actually a regression technique and allows for the resolution of trauma. And it actually came out of working out of uh, traumatized veterans. Uh, and now it's being practiced in all kinds of ways. And one of the things they learned, which was a really valuable piece of information, was the differentiation between PTSD and PTSS, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. The disorder is high-intensity, low-interval. Seeing your mother burn to death in the car next to you. PTSS is low-intensity, high-frequency telling a little girl she's fat and stupid 10,000 times. They both produce the traumatic effect in the body. And so EMDR works with both of them. It's kind of like our big silver bullet right now. But even things like, even though it was ridiculed for a while, emotional freedom technique, EFT, the tapping thing, that's like remarkable. There's something that goes on there. Uh, in fact, when you do, one of the things they add to EMDR is they, they add EFT. I mean, they will teach people how to use EFT while they're talking. Thump your hypothalamus. This is probably showing up strange in the soundtrack, but there you go. So all these things we can do, because it's somatic. It's in the body, which is where the trauma is held. So it's really, really exciting to see this. They're pushing far past talk therapy. Um, they're beginning to look much more deeply into these underpinnings. Um, what's exciting in this progressive recovery space that I alluded to is really pushing beyond what we know heretofore and looking far past for other ways. We know that acupuncture has been proved. There's some really interesting studies on acupuncture being very helpful. 
Well, acupuncture can bring you down, take you off the ledge, right? So of course it would be effective. Um, had some experience with a couple of folks who were using hydrotherapy, which was rejected years ago, but the flotation tanks are coming back, and it can be deeply soothing to people who are really jangled on the inside. So all these things emerging. The parts that I'm really excited about, though, more than anything else, is this data that has come forward about the devastating effects of poverty, hunger, violence in the community, um, is that there's now a growing acknowledgement that children essentially need first responders. So there's a growing body of programs which are teaching police, firemen, uh, EMTs, and teachers, people who have hands-on touch with children, to recognize the signs of trauma and to have a simple set of tools because it's a lot easier to work with a kid at the age of five than an adult of 35. The trauma is much, much more manageable at that level. We can actually work it through. The evidence is showing. So they're teaching, teaching teachers and others how to, like literally, if there's a child here, knock it into their space, get down on their level, because when you're above them, that too is stress-producing. Talk gently and softly. Just encourage them to talk. It is amazing to me that something as simple as getting down on a high level with children and talking gently to them is proving to be powerful. And so I imagine a time when every person who touches children will be trained in these strategies because you can do a lot on the scene, especially when the trauma is fresh. The other thing that excites me is uh, actually into the space of the military where, my goodness, they are, as you all very much know, there's all kinds of trauma coming back and it's very much associated with substance abuse. Um, and this whole practice around EMDR you know, I have a friend out in San Diego who's working with Marines out there. Um, who've, they're a wounded warrior project, um, which is not the one that was recently in the news for dastardly behavior. It's actually at the Marine Battalion. And um, she's doing some exciting work there with working with these people to, 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 to get them to a healed space using these kinds of detraumatization techniques. The really coolest part, though, I just saw the article about 18 months ago is they're beginning to measure post-traumatic growth. Have you all heard about that? Post-traumatic growth. Because it turns out that the same things that can devastate a human being when worked through are things that can transform their lives psycho-spiritually. I mean, you think about it. There's those, those things where someone has an awful thing happen and some people it really does destroy them other people it turns out to be the thing that transforms their life and so the question then becomes how do we take devastating circumstances and work with addicts and others to cross the chasm and bring it into post-traumatic growth to turn trauma into psychological or spiritual transformation that's a remarkable thing uh, one of the tools I've been using a lot and it's alluded to on one of those postcards as well as breath work I was actually doing a workshop I don't know, a couple years ago that's not right, Amy. Amy's been monitoring me for a while. Uh, somebody came up after workshop and they said, "So where can I get your 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 audio set?" To which I said, "Oh, I need an audio set because <laughs> I didn't have. I was doing workshops, and of course, yeah, you all would know this. You get into practice, and you forget these things, and so." I reached this point where I said, okay, let's do the audio set. So there's an audio set out there now called Breathing, Releasing, and Breaking Through, which actually works with breath work 
de-traumatization practice. It's as simple. I was laughing when, when Darlene had it. Well, actually, I believe you had us take a breath, didn't you, Shannon? Yeah. So even, even the centering of a breath, just coming back into the body. And of course, some would say the breath is the nearest thing to the spirit that embodies us other than the soul. So it makes sense that the breath would bring us back to this moment. And breath work has proven to be remarkably helpful in everything from treating rape crisis survivors to the re-embodiment associated. By the way, I guess I should say something about this. It's been disturbing to me in the recovering world to find out that more than half of the women have been sexually perpetrated. More than half. Then I was even more devastated to find out that it may not be a whole lot behind that in the general population. That it may be some of the stuff, maybe some of the most underreported things in the world. Um, and yet that just means there's more good work that needs to be done. And, and what that means is that these people that we have labeled as having problems, what they are is they're broken. Psychologically, spiritually broken. And our job, whether you can. <laughs> I love the midwife metaphor. Isn't it a wonderful metaphor? The midwife can claim no credit for the creation process, no credit for the birthing process, actually no credit for the baby whatsoever, but the midwife can catch the baby and hand it back to its mother. Maybe there's something they have to intervene on. But I love, I love the model because I think that we're all like midwives. The work we're doing is bearing witness, allowing the prodigal addict to be brought back to wholeness. Whatever that may mean for them is the work that lies before us in the world. You all do that. I do that. Others I know do that. And so there's some really exciting things. So it seems important to say, as I wrap this up, and then we'll chat a little bit about questions that you have on your mind. It it, it seems important to acknowledge a couple of things. On the one hand, especially with some of the things that are happening, especially with heroin right now and all its derivatives, Um, there's reason to be gravely concerned. Um, But there's also reason to believe that now that it's getting attention that we may find some solutions. In fact, I think we have some solutions. We're just having to learn to practice in ways that we're not sufficiently familiar with. The other thing I want to share before we move into talking a little bit about things that are on your mind, we have a few minutes for that, is because this is relevant to me because I'm the prodigal addict. This is my story I'm telling. Not all the particulars. Much of it I have learned because I've had hands-on in this. But what I know, and the reason I said yes to Mariola, is because I know that were it not for the touch of all those people who were actually genuinely, non-judgmentally interested in me finding wholeness again, I would not be here today. I would not have these stories to tell, and I certainly wouldn't be practicing in the world the way I'm practicing. It would have been too devastating to me. So there's like a magic about it all um, that some of us are remarkably appreciative of, which extends to you, although you never touch me. You touch my people, which is all these addicts and others in the world that need our help. So that's a profound thank you, because I couldn't be here without you. I may have to do it for myself, but I can't do it alone. It took all those other hands. So I appreciate you for that. Thank you for listening. Let's see what questions you have.